Finishing up numbers 32 this week, or 31 this week, and housekeeping wise, the last we have next week and the 5th of December, so it's the first week in December. The rest of December roots is book solid, so the 5th will be our last week that we meet for the year. Then we'll come back in January on January 9th. So the first week in January we want, so that New Year's. So well, that's like four weeks. Can you guys handle that? Be with some withdrawals. <laughs> um, yes, you can go catch up on the archives on the brand new website with all the video stuff and everything for free. So discipledojo.org and you have all of me you can handle. Uh, probably more than you want there and then we'll break and then we'll start in the new year now what that means is we've got three weeks this week next week next week to finish numbers and there's only a few chapters but the pace next week and the week after will be a little bit quicker but winding down in the book and the narrative sections have come to an end or are coming to an end and we spent last week two weeks on chapter 31 because it was such a hard chapter and it was about this command that we don't know if Moses gave or if God approved or if God didn't approve or whatever. We don't know the fate of the people from the cities that Moses captured, these Midianites. tells us other than what we're going to see here, which is the legitimate capture from the cities. So the people who were captured in battle, and in the ancient world, if you went in, if you fought against an enemy in the ancient world, you didn't flee, but you stayed and fought and you lost you were taken and absorbed into that people's population as slaves, as servants. And you would work as, a, as an evid, the Hebrew word, uh, and that was your lot until either they let you go, or if you decided to stay there, or we check the session on Exodus and biblical slavery for a discussion on that, because we talked a lot about how different it was in the ancient world versus the colonial slave trade that we're used to. So, but that was just how it worked. And remember, God stepped into this culture to redeem a people who would then point the way to his desire. So he's working within the bounds of ancient Near Eastern warfare. And if you read scripture accounts of ancient Near Eastern battles, they're very, very similar to what we read in Exodus, including the numbers and the way the numbers are laid out in these astronomical figures, which we're going to see in this section. And so we come to chapter 31, verse 25. It says, the Lord said to Moses, you and Eliezer the priest and the family heads of the community are to count all the people and animals that were captured. Divide the spoils between the soldiers who took part in battle and the rest of the community. So everybody, not just the people who went out to battle, but all of Israel gets to partake in what was gleaned through battle. That was just how it worked. Not just the soldiers, but everybody, because the soldiers were representing Israel as a whole. However... The soldiers, the ones that did the fighting, were entitled, were received a larger share than the ones who stayed and didn't fight. And that's, I mean, that goes with our sense of fairness. And that's what we read here. Verse 28, from the soldiers who fought in the battle, set apart as tribute for the Lord, one out of every 500, whether persons, cattle, donkey, sheep, or goats. So one out of every 500 will go to, or will be given from the soldiers to the Lord. That's their offering. So it's not just about what they get first, but the first thing God says is, now this is what the soldiers are going to give. One out of every 500. So one 500. 
uh, take this tribute from their half share and give it to Eliezer the priest as the Lord's part. From the Israelites' half, so they split the stuff in half. So the soldiers get half of everything and they have to give one five hundredth of that to the Lord. The rest of Israelites get the other half, so they each get less. And from the Israelites' half, select one out of every 50, whether persons, cattle, donkeys, sheep, goats, or animals. Give them to the Levites who are responsible for the care of the Lord's tabernacle. So one out of every 50 is what everybody else gets. So the soldiers' share that they would take home to their families would be much more than the people who did not go into battle. So just the way it's worded is kind of weird in our English and, and it kind of we lose track when how it's repeated, but that's what's going on here. The ones who risk are the ones who actually get a greater reward in this sense. And this was going to be the paradigm for Israel's later battles. Remember, this chapter is paradigmatic for how Israel was to be once they entered into Canaan under Joshua. This is how they're 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 driving out of the Canaanites and the battles that they would fight, which we'll read all through the book of Joshua, this is how it was going to be. This is a preview of coming attractions, basically. So then it says, uh, so Moses and Eliezer the priests did as the Lord commanded. Moses, the plunder remaining from the spoils that the soldiers took was 675 eleph of sheep, and again, eleph is the number for thousand, clan, tribe, regiment, unit, or something else that we don't know. So I'm leaving the ambiguity there. 675 elephant of sheep, 72 elephant of cattle, 61 elephant of donkeys, and 32 elephant of women who have never slept with a man. These were the Moabite women who had not enticed Israel, the ones who had not gone and tried to get Israel to leave God, worshiping God, in order to come worship their sex god, Baal. That's what all of this whole thing is centered around. So there were the women who were not guilty of that, who God, they were allowed to be spared. And if that troubles you, again, check the last two weeks on the podcast where we dealt with that. Um, so the half share of those who fought in battle, so this is the offering of the one to the soldiers, 337 elephant 500 sheep, of which the tribute to the Lord was 675. 36 elephant of cattle, of which the tribute of the Lord was 72. 30 elephant 500 donkeys, of which the tribute of the Lord was 61. And 16 elephant people, which the tribute for the Lord was 32. So this is the offerings that the army, the, the warriors, those who fought, gave. Moses gave the tribute to Eliezer the priest as the Lord's part, as the Lord commanded Moses. So the first thing to do after this is they're giving back to God. 42. The Israelites, which Moses set apart from that of the fighting men, and here the repetition comes, the community's half was the other half. 337 out of 500 sheep, 36 out of cattle, 30 out of 500 donkeys, and 16 out of people. In the Israelites' half, Moses selected one out of 50 persons and animals as the Lord commanded him and gave them to the Levites who were responsible for the care of the Lord's tabernacle. So the Lord's part is taken off first. Then the officers, then the officers who are over the units of the army the commanders of Elifs and the commanders of hundreds went to Moses and said to him, Your servants have counted the soldiers under our command, and not one is missing. So we brought as an offering to the Lord the gold articles each of us acquired, armlets, bracelets, signet rings, earrings, necklaces, to make atonement for ourselves before the Lord. So now they, they go and they present and they find out after the battle, nobody, nobody was lost. 
This was supernatural. This is miraculous because ancient Near East warfare was up close warfare. There was not artillery and call in the Air Force, you know, bomb them first. And then this was take your spears, your swords, your slings, your staffs, whatever you have. And at this point, Israel doesn't really have swords, by the way. Uh, I mean, they, they kind of have like utility knives and pruning hooks and things that they. But they're, remember, they're an army of slaves. They have whatever they brought out of Egypt, which was not military equipment. Going out the Midianites and the Moabite coalition, in this case, who were armed. King Og of Bashan, King Sihon, these were armed people. These were, they had the technology that Israel did not have. And when they get into Canaan, the technology will even be, be even higher level. Israel went in, and not only did they defeat him, but they defeated him without losing a single person hand-to-hand -hand combat in the ancient world and not a single person was left that was killed in Israel's side. That is a supernatural battle. This is not Israel going and doing a campaign of their own fighting. This is what God promised in the covenant. If you remain faithful, if you obey the covenant, then the nations I'm sending you to drive out in this one instance in all of Israel's history, they will be driven out and this will be the norm or this should be the norm. Something close to this should be the norm. The problem will come when Israel starts to violate the covenant. When Israel starts to turn away from the covenant, God will sometimes remove that covenant protection. And then they are going into battle almost on their own strength. If that happens, they're doomed for failure. And so this is why it's so important for Israel to maintain that, that holiness that Leviticus that we spent a year, and the Israel spent a year literally around the base of Mount Sinai learning how to be holy, how to go into battle holy, how to go into farming holy, how to celebrate the holidays holy, how to live their lives holy, how to have children holy, how to be married holy. All of their holiness is like, it's a, it's a communal safeguard in the sense that if they're upholding their end of the covenant as a people, then God upholds His end of the covenant as a their suzerain, which is to protect them and to fight their battles for them. And so this is really not the theme of Israel's wars in the Old Testament in this section are not the might of Israel versus the might of the Canaans, and God helps them a little bit. But it's rather Israel is God's... God, God is going into battle and Israel is just the means by which He's doing it. Because this, the, 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 the judgment on the Canaanites that's going to come, that began here with these Midianites who specifically tried to curse and destroy the people of Israel through the whole Balaam saga, this is the preview, and it's giving them, it's giving Moses, and it's giving the new generation that this is who they are. These are not the ones that came out of Egypt. This is the Israel who their parents have all died in the desert. And they know now this is what God can do for us. He's giving them a glimpse of what He can do as them, a rabble of wilderness, desert-raised ex-slaves and mixed multitude who came out of Egypt. He's showing them what can happen, the possibility. So it's an incredible moment. And the, and the officers, they, they say, we, we counted and nobody's missing. We're giving this as an atonement. Now there's a division or, or interpreters say, why did they bring this? Why did they give this gold? Like, why not? I mean, they already gave their offerings. We've already seen the tithes, so to speak. And this is not technically a tithe. This is a special tithe, like a battle offering. They've already given that. Why did they then bring the extra gold? So some say it's because they were 
grateful above and beyond. And so this is the concept of you have tithes and offerings. Tithes are the base. Offerings are beyond that. So when in church, churches that teach the tithe today, they're like tithe, and then your offerings are the extra stuff that you want to give above and beyond the tithe. And that's how it worked in ancient Israel. You had your tithe, which were mandatory, and then you gave your offerings what you were grateful for above the tithe. So that's what they say is going on here. Others say, no, in this case, they said this is to make atonement for us. Why do they need to be atoned for? Because God preserved miraculously their lives. And so they're wanting to make a payment in some feeble, you know, childish way, them still thinking they could possibly pay their lives. And God's, you know, it's not like a bad thing. It's just, I, I, I need to give something because of how my life was saved, like a ransom you know, because this is so miraculous. And then others look at this and go, no, no. The reason that they had to make atonement was because they knew taking a census, which is what they did, they took a count. Taking a count of your fighting troops is a very dangerous thing in the Bible. God specifically, in this case, back in uh, Exodus 30, and those of you that weren't here two years ago, we were in Exodus 30. God, I'll, I'll flip to it just so you can read. God gave a commandment that had to do with whenever a census was taken. And he said, find it here. Chapter 30, verse 11, Then the Lord said to Moses, When you take a census of the Israelites to count them, each one must pay the Lord a ransom for his life at the time he is counted. Then no plague will come on them when you number them. And so there was this concept of taking a census was an incredibly dangerous act because it was always a prelude to battle or a prelude to gauging your military might. And God wanted to instill in Israel, like this is not your, you're not, this is not your army. You're not the head of this fighting force. This is my army. I call up the censuses, censuses, censi, whatever the plural is. I'm the one who designates when the census is taken. And if you do it, you better pay, you better make atonement, you better, it's going to cost you in order to do that. And then later in David's reign, he would actually take a census and that would be seen as an evil action and he would be punished, the nation would be punished for his census taking because it was always, it's never to gather information, it was always to prepare to muster the troops or to proclaim and show off one's might. So that's the third way that people have looked at this and seen is these officers and commanders knew Exodus 30, that law, and they were like, we risked it because we had to see, did we lose anybody? And we didn't, and we're amazed, and, but here's our offering to, here's our, here's our payment for taking the census. So do with that what you will, look into it, read up on it. It's not a huge thing, but it does, it's a little thing, just tuck away in your mind. Taking a census in Israel was seen as a precarious action in, in, in the world of Torah. And, and it will come up later in the reign of King David. Uh, especially. But, so they go on then, verse 31, Moses, Eliezer the priest, accepted from them gold, all the crafted articles, all the gold from the commanders of thousands, or elephs, the commanders of hundreds, that Moses and Eliezer presented as a gift to the Lord, weighed 16,000 or 16 out of 750 shekels. And that would be, if you did the math and it was counted as thousands, that'd be about 420 pounds. So like 500 pounds of gold was what they brought. It's a significant chunk of change. I'd take one pound of gold, personally. <clears throat> Each soldier had taken plunder for himself. Moses and Eliezer the priests accepted the gold from the commanders of the elephs, the commanders of the hundreds, and brought it to the tent of meeting as a memorial for the Israelites before the Lord. As a memorial. 
So this gold, this, this, these articles were not melted and refurbished for tabernacle use. Um, they were not tucked away in the treasury to fund future expeditions. They were not whatever. They were kept as a memorial to the Lord. In other words, this was God had done an amazing thing, a supernatural thing, bringing vengeance on these Midianites who tried to destroy God's people. The promise going all the way back to Abraham, Genesis 12: Those who bless you, I will bless; those who curse you, I will curse. Midianite Moabite coalition had tried to literally curse Israel through hiring the prophetic hitman Balaam, and God thwarted that plan and turned that curse back on them. And this is the results of that. And so, so what was given in this case to the tabernacle was kept as a memorial, remembering. So Israel would look back at that, and future generations would look back, and they would say, God preserved us in this battle miraculously. And he cursed those who tried to destroy us supernaturally. And this is the God we serve. This is the God of the covenant. So the, there were these memorials. Again, Israel does this thing. They look to the past in order to guide how they look to the present. And that's what we want to be able to do as well. Binocular vision God's people should have. Look to the past. Don't get hung up in the past. Don't long to go back to Egypt. Look back to Egypt and be glad that God has brought you how far He's brought you but keep your eye on Canaan because that's where we're headed. Keep your eye on the promised land. That's why Numbers is, again, I said this at the beginning of the year, back in January, Numbers is the book that is the paradigm for Christians today living in this world. Because the New Testament authors posit us in the same situation spiritually as Israel was physically. We've been redeemed out of Egypt. We've been brought out of sin. And we're being called into Canaan, into the promised land. Only instead of a piece of real estate in the Middle East, it's the new Jerusalem, the new creation, the new heavens, the new earth. And so that's our goal. That's where we're going. But in the meantime, we're walking in this wilderness. We're in Moab. We're in Midian. We're in Og of, or Bashan with King Og's around us and, and King Sihon's. Like we're in that area. And the call of Numbers is the call to us in this generation. Will you be faithful when God calls you into your battles that He has for you? So it's, it's very much, you can look at numbers, and you, it, it's, it's dangerous to do this with everything in Scripture. Spiritualize or allegorize stuff. The old, you know, some scholars and, and interpreters throughout the history have looked at everything as an allegory. And so immediately when they read David and Goliath, then immediately they go, now who are the Goliaths in your life? It's not that. It's not that simple. Because we have to see the trajectory of God's people and we don't want to spiritualize or fabulize everything. Not every Bible story is a lesson where you're one of the characters and your enemies are the other character or the devil's another character. And God. You can't do that with everything. But Numbers is one of the things that the New Testament actually tells us, yes, you can and you should do that. The book of Hebrews... Paul's letters, they tell us they were an example for us. And then the New Testament authors use numbers, the, the imagery of Israel in the wilderness, to describe God's people today under the New Covenant as aliens and exiles in this world and how we should live. So there's biblical warrant for seeing Israel's journey in numbers through the wilderness as our journey following the new Joshua, Jesus, the new Moses, the new lawgiver, Jesus, into the promised land. 
And so if we read numbers that way, then we see things in a different light. It casts our struggles and our battles and our seemingly mundane day-to-day life in a new light because we see, yes, we do feel like we're wandering. We do feel like we're in the desert. But God does have a mission for us. And it's the same mission that He had for Israel just ratcheted up to a universal level. Israel's mission, go into Canaan, drive out these Canaanites and live as holy people so that you can shine a light to all the nations and they will be drawn to me. Our mission's the same thing. Go into all the world, preach the gospel, drive out the forces of evil. Jesus used all this imagery, push back the darkness, but it's not physical battles, it's not flesh and blood, but it's powers, principalities, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Our weapons are not swords, it's prayer, it's self-sacrificial love, it's laying down our life for people. All of that stuff, do that so that we will shine for the God of Israel and people will be drawn to the God of Israel. It's the same mission. The tactics have changed. It looks different now in this side of the new covenant because this was what, that was what this was always intended to point towards. So there's a lot going on at the macro level. But... Let's jump into chapter 32 real quick uh, and we, we'll just get through it and then maybe do a recap next week. But So they're about to, they, they've done this miraculous battle. They're on the other side of the Jordan River. Okay? They're not on the Israel side. They're on what today would be Jordan and, and Syria. All right? That area. <clears throat> so the Reubenites and the Gadites, these are the two tribes, Reuben and Gad, who had very large herds and flocks, saw that the lands of Yazar and Gilead suitable for livestock. So they came to Moses and Eleazar the priest and to the leaders of the community and they said, uh, and they said, Adaroth, Dibon, Yazer, Nimrah, Heshbon, Eleah, Sabon, Nebo, and Baon, the land, of the, the land the Lord subdued before the people of Israel, in other words, this land that we've been in fighting these battles, uh, are suitable for livestock. And your servants, us, have livestock. If we found favor in your eyes, they said, let this land be given to your servants as our possession. Do not make us cross the Jordan. So they've gotten to the point, they're overlooking the promised land, and they're like, we kind of like it here. We've got flocks, we've got herds, can we have this land? They're willing to settle, literally settle, and spiritually settle, on the other side of the Jordan River and not go into the land. So, verse 6, Moses said to the Gadites and the Reubenites, shall your countrymen go to war while you sit here? Why are you discouraging the Israelites from going over into the land the Lord has given them? This is what your fathers did when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to look over the land. After they went up to the valley of Eshcol and viewed the land, they discouraged the Israelites from entering the land and the Lord had given them. The Lord's anger was aroused in that day and He swore this oath because they have not followed Me wholeheartedly. Not one of the men 20 years old or more who came out of Egypt will see the land that I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not one except Caleb son of Jephunneh and Kenizzite and Joshua son of Nun. For they followed the Lord wholeheartedly. The Lord's anger burned against Israel and He made them wander in the desert 40 years until this whole generation of those who had done evil in His sight was gone. And here you are, a brood of sinners, standing in the place of your fathers and making the Lord even more angry with Israel. If you turn away from following Him, He will again leave all this people in the desert and you will be the cause of their destruction. Moses does not mince words. He says, hey, we've been through this before. 
But we don't want to go into the land thing is the reason that I've wandered with you guys for 40 years in the desert. And he's smacking them down. Like Moses is being intense in this section because they're right on the cusp. They're right there. And he's looking back and he's having memories of from Kadesh Barnea where they were like, we don't want to go. The land was right there. They were supposed to be there 40 years ago. They were supposed to be in their second generation in the land. And their disobedience, the spies came back and they're like, hey, hey, we don't need to go. And that spread a rumor. And the people murmured and rebelled. And it was all lost for that generation. And Moses is seeing echoes of that again. So the question that the reader has is, "Uh uh-oh, is this going to be the the Kadesh Barnea 2.0? Is is it going to happen again? Did they not learn the lesson of their parents? And so there's some tension in this section. But we find out they actually have learned the lesson. They can't completely get away from their parents. There still is that feeling of settling and we don't want to go any further, but they work a compromise. Uh, Verse 16, Then they came up to him and said, We'd like to build pens here for our livestock and cities for our women and children. But we're ready to arm ourselves and go ahead of the Israelites until we've brought them to their place. Meanwhile, our women and children will live in the fortified cities for protection from the inhabitants of the land. We'll not return to our homes until every Israelite has received his inheritance. We'll not receive any inheritance with them on the other side of the Jordan because our inheritance has come to us on the east side of the Jordan. So then Moses said to them, if you'll do this, if you will arm yourselves before the Lord for battle, and if all of you will go armed over to the Jordan before the Lord until He has driven His enemies out before Him, then... After the land is subdued before the Lord, you may return and be free from your obligation to the Lord and to Israel. And this land will be your possession before the Lord. But if you fail to do this, you will be sinning against the Lord. and You may be sure that your sin will find you out. Build cities for your women and children, pens for your livestock, but do what you have promised. So he gives them the stipulations. Okay. As long as you will go and make sure that everybody gets theirs, then you can return and have this land. So you can settle. You can have what you want on this side of the Jordan. But your obligation, you are still the tribes of Israel. You still have to make sure that your people, just because you got yours, doesn't mean you get to enjoy it until they've gotten theirs. Until everybody's come together. We're in this together. So he says, build cities. And cities is a misnomer. We think of Charlotte's a city. He, these are little fortified garrisons. Because they're worried about their, women, their, their, their people that are too... Basically, the, the word that's translated women and children, it's this word taff. And taff is like everybody who can't march armed for battle. So elderly women, children, disabled, whatever. That would all just be the taff. And they say, let us build pens for our livestock and protection for our taff. It's basically villages, fortified villages is what they're talking about. So don't think cities in that sense of the word. So they work this treatment out. Just let, it, let us leave our folks here and we will go on with you. The fighting force will continue. We will march and make sure and we won't come back to our... So that's the compromises throughout the whole conquest. All the other tribes will be with their families, with their possessions, with their belongings. Whereas the Reubenites and the Gadites will have to, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they'll have to remember that theirs are back there and they have to go back to them after it's over. So it's a bit of a compromise, but Moses allows it. In verse 25, the Gadites and the Reubenites said to Moses, we your servants will do as the Lord commands. Our children, our wives, our flocks, and our herds will remain here in the cities of Gilead. 
But your servants, every man armed for battle, will cross over to fight before the Lord, just as our Lord says. Then Moses gave orders about them to Eleazar the priest and Joshua son of Nun and to the family heads of the Israelite tribe. So you've got to make this official for everybody. And we'll end here. He said to them, If the Gadites and Reubenites, every man armed for battle, cross over the Jordan with you before the Lord, then when the land is subdued before you, give them the land of Gilead as their possession. But if they do not cross over with you armed, they must accept their possession with you in Canaan. The Gadites and the Reubenites answered, Your servants will do what the Lord has said. We will cross over before the Lord into Canaan armed, but the property we inherit will be on this side of the Jordan. Then Moses gave to the Gadites, Reubenites, and half-tribe of Manasseh, son of Joseph, the kingdom of Sihon, king of the Amorites, and the kingdom of Og, king of Bashan, the whole land, its cities, and territory around them. So the Gadites built up Dibon, Ataroth, Aroer, Aroth, Shophan, Yazer, Yagbaha, Beth Nimrah, and Beth Haran as fortified cities, and built pens for their flocks. And the Reubenites built Heshbon, Eleah, Kiriathiam, as well as Nebo and Baal-Meon, these names were changed, and Sibma. They gave names to the cities they rebuilt. And the descendants of Machir, son of Manasseh, went to Gilead, captured it, drove out the Amorites who were there. So Moses gave Gilead to the Machirites, the descendants of Manasseh, and they settled there. Yair, a descendant of Manasseh, captured their settlements and called them Habaoth Yair. And Noba captured Kenoth and its surrounding settlements and called it Noba after himself. So now we're starting to see the, the allotment of the tribes and they're, gonna, they're starting to settle or, or, or on the trajectory of settling in the land. They're, they're beginning the conquest, um, and, but it's on this side of the Jordan River. They still have to get everything on this side, which is the main goal. So we got to go because we're out of time. Next week we'll pick up. There's going to be a recount. So we're going to fly through next chapter and then look at the chapter after that. It's just going to recount. This is where you've come from, and this is where you're going. And then on the 5th, we'll wrap up the book. We'll see what happened to Zelophehad's daughters, the ones who are like, hey, give us inheritance, even though we don't have an older brother. We'll see that God hadn't forgot about them, and he's going to give them concepts of cities of refuge, and he's going to basically prepare them to be on the cusp of inheriting the land. But we're one minute over by my watch, so get out of here. Have a great holiday, and we'll see you afterwards. And there's plenty of food, so take some to go. Bye, guys.